Today we're going to look at the subject of trust, and in particular the subject of uh, trust in marriage, as well as in uh, other relationships. You know, we're looking at marriage matters and we're going to continue just understanding a little bit more. But the application that I hope that you will see will really fit not only to uh, your marriage, but we're going to be talking about your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with other friends and family. I mean, the application will be, I think, quite significant. We're going to stay on that first slide. So the idea here is trust. I had this conversation just the other day, um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking with someone about what was going on in their relationship with marriage. And it sort of dawned on us as we were talking, because there were some real struggles what was taking place in the, in the relationship. And I, I finally looked at the, um, one of the individuals, and I said, so let me ask you a question. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of different things, so let me ask you this question. Do you trust the Lord for what he can do in your marriage? And, and for a moment there, it sort of stopped them. And they both kind of paused, and one of them said almost immediately, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I get your point. I'm not sure I really trust Jesus for what he can do here. And I said, wouldn't you agree that before we can move forward in anything, that the first place for you as a believer is to trust Jesus? See, it's interesting, you can be a believer and struggle with your trust relationship with God, wondering, Lord, will you really do what I hope you could do here? But inside of us, which is not uncommon, is doubt and fear and uncertainty because of a number of reasons. We're going to look at that. I'd I'd like for you and I to begin to understand the concept of trust. And we're going to start, first of all, with the idea of trust with Jesus. Now, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, we can see here in this passage, starting at verse uh, 17, it talks about our trust and the importance of it. Let me just read it, uh, if you'll follow. I don't have a slide, so again, I encourage you to open up your Bible or turn your device on, and uh, we'll be uh, using that throughout our message here uh, a number of times. So it tells us here in in, in chapter 1, starting at verse 13, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may he give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes, the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. It's kind of interesting when you look at this, the the very heading of of the passage says, prayer for spiritual wisdom. And it's interesting that the heart of this is that we might know God. Really, if you were to look at what I just read, and again, sometimes the words can confuse us, it's really very simple. This is a statement in Scripture that is helping us understand how it is that we can really know God. Because the challenge for many of us is that we know about God, we know about Jesus, but do we know Jesus? 
And the idea here is, is like this amazing relationship that you and I can have with Jesus. But unfortunately, we often mistake our information and our knowledge and our education as if somehow we know. I mean, the reality is you can know about someone because of their biography. I mean, this is a biography of God. We can know about the history of what God did. This is a historical report of what actually happened in the past. But even though we have information about history, we have a biography, does that mean we know the person? And really what the Scripture is challenging us with is that we may not, but we can. <laughs> What's exciting is that it is possible to really know God. And what the Scripture is giving us is insight as how we can know someone, how we can know the Lord, how we can know our spouse, how we can know people around us. Now, in this case, this is telling us that we have been given the tools and the resources so we can know Him really well. So obviously, we've talked about this in the past. I mean, how is it that anyone knows somebody? What needs to happen in order to really know someone? Can you help me out here? What, would, what does it take? Spending time. Spending time. Absolutely. What else? Trust. Trust? Sure. What else? Think of the activity. What activity do we need to gauge in in order to know? Communication. Communication. Like talk and listen. We call that prayer. Yeah. Just kind of prayer is just a way of saying talking and listening. Spending time. Kind of hanging out together. Now, to know God is... It's a pretty awesome task, wouldn't you say? I mean, like, I can know human beings, but also to know the creator of, of all the universe around us. How can I know God? And it's interesting because God says, well, first of all, I've given you this word. Now, how we approach this word is important because this word can be just information. But God said, I'm going to breathe life into this word. So when you read it, it will produce life but it only happens because there is the, God, it says inspired, this is the inspired word, the God-breathed word. So when you read this, this changes you. Or it informs you. And here this passage is saying, no, it, it does inform you, but it also changes you because there's life to it. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Because what this is reminding us of is that there is, in fact, a resource that's been given to every one of us so that we can know Jesus, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to help us get to know Him really well. And that's why when you're saved, what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit, exactly. And all of a sudden, in you is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit helps you get to know God. Isn't that amazing? Because without that, you could never really know God. Without the Holy Spirit, you might know about God, but you'll never really know God. And that's one of the reasons why the activity of reading His Word, praying, and get this, talking to each other. Isn't it? Now, think about this. If it's true that Richard and I have the Holy Spirit in us, and if we talk, then we can get to know God through each other. Because a crazy thing might happen. All of a sudden, God might speak to Richard to give something to me by way of what? The Holy Spirit. 
And all of a sudden, I connect in a way that's absolutely amazing because we share in the Holy Spirit. That's why getting together, the small groups, church, us talking, when we talk to each other, we actually can help each other get to know God. I love it when Ben can share with me his experiences because it encourages me to know more about God and to really get to know who God can be through his experience. And then I share with him. And all of a sudden, a dynamic takes place by way of the Holy Spirit, by way of the Word of God. And guess what happens? We get to know him. But too often in the world we live in today, we separate ourselves well away from the interaction of the church, reading the Word. The fact is today, most of us hardly ever read the Word. We seldom pray, and we don't talk to each other a whole lot about Jesus. And I got to tell you, I am on a mission to get you reading the Word, praying, and talking to each other. Because I believe that is some of the best ways that we get to know who God really is. And this Word is saying, this is how this all happens. I mean, the very concept of what is being talked about here of how can I know God is by doing these things. And if you don't do them, well, whose fault is it? Yeah, I'd like to think it's, you would agree it's your fault, but most of us would prefer to blame the church or the pastor. That's why I'm here. It's in small print in my job description. Blame Pastor Steve for what's not happening with God in my life. Because <laughs> somehow it must be his fault, right? I actually had people suggest that a few times. And again, I want you to know that is not a biblical concept. But I do share with you what God has given me because I'm doing that right now. And in that sense, you and I are getting to know God. Not just information, but this personal dynamic. Now, I want you to think about this and begin to make application not only to the Lord Jesus, but also in our marriages, in our friendships, with our family members. These are the elements that are necessary for us to really get to know someone. And what begins to happen is growing to know God and have an accurate belief or trust picture of God is the goal of a Christian walk. What this is saying is you need to have a healthy image of, of who God really is. We're going to talk more about that. Sometimes this is part of the struggle a lot of us have. We've been disappointed, at least we think we've been disappointed by God. We have an image of what God is or isn't, and the result is we struggle with our connection with God. I mean, you think about it, here's a challenging statement. I didn't you guys are so much better than the first service. I didn't ask the first service to do this. Mom, I'm going to ask you to do this. Think about for a second here. If I were to ask you, what is your image of God? What picture comes to mind? Just, just take a second and think about it. Just think about it. What is the picture that comes to mind? I mean, think about not the descriptors, but the actual image. Like, we'll say Jesus, we'll say God the Father. So let me follow this up. So what does he look like exactly? Paint me a picture. No, don't do it. I'm not, you don't have to say anything. But think about what is the actual picture. If I were to say, go home and draw me a picture, for those of us that could draw, my God would look like a stick figure. Hallelujah. But he'd be glowing, man. <laughs> what do, see, that's an interesting kind of challenge, isn't it? 
When's the last time you really thought about what is, see, often our image is what we've seen on TV. I had someone say, in my image is, well, the passion. You know, that guy who played Jesus. That's what I think of. That comes to my mind. So, well, so that's your Jesus, an actor. <laughs> I mean, again, think about that. It's, it's really quite a challenge, isn't it? And so you and I, what Ephesians is saying, it says in Colossians and 2 Peter, is that you and I have an opportunity to develop and understand, so who really is our God? Who is Jesus in us? Can we really know him? Now, related to this is really the concept of trust. Because part of what we start doing by doing this is we develop trust. And trust begins to grow because of a healthy image of what we have, not only with Jesus, but also with our mates. The image that we have that forms in our mind and our heart of our mate, of our family, of our children, begins to help us develop trust. But what really is trust? If I were to ask you to help me define trust, what word would be a synonym? What word would you use that would help be a descriptor of trust. What is trust? Safety. Safety. Here. <laughs> that was a good answer. That's exactly right. What else? Respect. Respect. Yes. What else? What is that? Confidence. Yes. Honesty. Honesty. What am I talking for? You guys are doing great. So you think about it, trust is really two concepts. Let me, let me summarize. One, Trust has to do with being trustworthy or dependable. When you trust someone, they're dependable. You can count on them. And the second is the act of trust is something that you have belief or faith in someone. And here it is, having confidence. Someone said confidence. And I love it. And being safe with them. You see... Trust will not develop if you don't feel safe. If you, if you come home and walk in your door and you're not sure what's going to happen and you're, you feel unsafe, then how do you trust the person that you're living with? I mean, you, you live with your, your, your kids or your, your, your mate. I mean, that is such a critical piece of understanding that you and I have safety. We often don't use that word associated with trust, but it's such a critical word. Trust is a belief that the person we live with is trustworthy and that we have this amazing image that we can actually see them as being trustworthy. The image of their face, of their actions, of who they are is trustworthy. Wouldn't you agree that trust is an expectation of marriage? I mean, I would hope so. I mean, you think about trust is pretty important in a marriage relationship. I mean, I think of trust, I trust my best friend. I have several people that I consider my closest friends, and I trust them. I feel safe with them. And there's some people, because of their profession, I trust them. You know, I've got my doctor, who I've been seeing for probably 25 years now. I really don't know him, like, personally really well, but I've been... I, I'm a, Fortunately, I'm only in his office once or twice a year, but I trust him because of all those letters behind his name that he knows how to read lab reports, he knows how to do the exams, and he can come back and say, you know what, you're good for another year, Steve. And I'm going, oh, thank you, praise God. And so there's a sense there, I trust his ability because of what he can do. That's trust. 
That's why when you're a professional, trust is such a, a sacred thing. And why when that trust is violated, it's so huge in the world we live in today. Trust, listen, trust is the belief you have in your spouse. And it's an attitude that you have that's based upon the image inside your head of your mate. That image that you have inside of your head is part of the key foundation for the trust and the attitude that you have. I mean, I would imagine every one of us have had the people we trust be mad at us. And so when we do something, that image can come into our head. And then we have that image, and that image can change how it is that we respond. <laughs> For example, I'm sure this never happened to anyone but me, but every now and then I'm given an assignment by my wife. <laughs> and that assignment is to bring something home at the end of the day. And of course, you know, that usually happens, you know, in the morning. And so, you know, I get that assignment, whether it's, you know, bring home eggs or milk or or something for dinner because it's, it's a, maybe a critical ingredient for whether or not I'm going to eat that evening. <laughs> and so, you know, then you get busy, you work hard. And I don't know about you, but I, there's this moment when all of a sudden I, I walk up and I touch the front door handle. It's like electricity flowing through my body. Oh no, I forgot the eggs. And immediately that image comes to my head. And what that image is will reflect the development of your relationship. Honestly, my image is very good because I've done this a few times and my experience is she'll say something like, oh, it's okay. We're no rush. You can go get it now. <laughs> And, I'm, and I see her smiling, and I'm so happy. You see, we refer, but if that image isn't that, and the image is being yelled at, or the, the anger that comes, how dare you forget? How could you again? I've heard this said. How is it you forgot again? How, didn't you write it down? Am I not important? Is not dinner important? <laughs> And I'll say something like, yeah, there's always hamburger. <laughs> Have a burger, right? <laughs> That's always my way out. Hallelujah. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? That image that gets cemented into our minds becomes part of the foundation for building trust. If that is not a good image, then here, God needs to heal that. A lot of what I do in helping couples is helping them uncover that image and asking God to heal it. Because let me tell you what won't happen. As long as that image remains in your brain, and that is your primary image, then that marriage is not going to be okay. It may be hot and cold, but you're going to struggle in any relationship. I can't tell you how many times. I mean, it's happened in my life as a pastor, where all of a sudden I might say or do something that you know isn't what a person likes or appreciates or whatever that might be, and all of a sudden, they'll tell me that's their image. And all of a sudden, that becomes a predominant image. 
And then they're like, I'm just the bad guy now. And I'll say, but wait a second. What about all the good things that have happened previously? And it's like all of a sudden, because of what they're looking at and what they're seeing and the image in their brain, it's not good anymore. So those kinds of things can happen so easily and absolutely quickly. It's amazing how that can happen. You know, really, as we understand, a lot of this is foundational to an attitude. You know, attitude is everything about building trust. <laughs> Your attitude is really important. Aren't you glad I'm bringing that up? See, I think a lot of times when we talk about attitude, we almost talk as if somehow it is sort of not that important. But you know what I've learned? Attitude is everything. At your attitude in the marriage, your attitude in life can totally change everything. We think about that. Why is attitude so important, do you think? Why is attitude so important? Help me out. It's a driving force. Yeah. It kind of sets the stage for everything else, doesn't it? I mean, when your attitude and how you go through the day will affect everything you do, right? Here's a guy who's got a great attitude, even in the face of water going everywhere. I love his. <laughs> I watched him. It's like, I'm going, ah, and he's like, ah, oh, relax, no big deal. <laughs> right? Attitude. What else? Why is attitude so important, do you think? Say it again. Sets a tone or an expectation. Absolutely. It, it can set the tone for the, for the week even, right? It's about your, all of a sudden it changes your, yeah, your, your, everything about who you are, your, yourself, your perception. It's an amazing attitude is a very powerful thing. Now, here's something that I know is pretty simple. It's going to blow some of you out of the water. You're responsible for your own attitude. Yes. Not me. As much as I know you want to blame me, you can't. And you can't blame your spouse. You can't blame the environment around you. Your attitude is your responsibility. Oh, but wait a second, Steve, you're not listening, man, because, man... I walked in and everyone else's attitude was really bad. Okay. So that means you got that gives you permission not to have a bad attitude. Someone's got to change the attitude in that house. Why not it be you? Well, you understand how influential everyone is around me. Oh no, I understand. I'm not saying they don't influence you. I'm not saying there shouldn't be some change. But ultimately, your attitude is your biblical responsibility. I'm not just saying this. God said it. Your attitude says you should have an attitude like Christ. You can't blame anybody else. And I've had so many people come and suggest that it's everyone else's fault but themselves. What is a bad attitude? It's essentially over-focusing on the negative. When you over-focus on the negative and all you see what is wrong, you are going to have a bad attitude. It's all about where you look. It's all about what you see, where your eyes go. 
That can change everything. There's some examples of, of, of attitude and uh, a couple biblical pictures. There's one here with Paul, Barnabas, and John, another one with Peter and Jesus. Let me just take one because all we have time for it. You can look at the other later. But I, I love this one with Peter. And you all know the story of Peter and Jesus, right? You probably know Matthew 14, Mark, Luke. You know right away. This is when Peter walks on water. Is that like way cool or what? So here, you know, they have this teaching time. And, and if you read the whole passage, basically Jesus tells the disciples, get in the boat and go. And off they go. And a storm hits. A really big storm. And they're sitting here literally holding on for life. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking out on the water. And they're all looking, going, is that a ghost? What is that walking on the water? And they were scared. Scripture says they were really frightened. Of course, Peter, Peter's just a cool guy. I know he was scared, but for, he looked really, he must have had really good vision. And he looked out and said, I think that's Jesus. Matter of fact, it tells us in verse 22, um, it says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. So he kind of qualified it just in case. I'm pretty sure it's Jesus, but could you verify that for me? Because I don't want to get on the boat and go straight down 600 feet. And what did Jesus say? He just said, come. Hey, man, hang out with me. Get out of the boat and let's walk on water. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I want to do that. I want all of you to be able to do that. What an amazing experience to walk on water with Jesus. I think it still happens today in a lot of other different ways where Jesus says, come, get out of the boat. Trust me. You're going to walk on water. Now, before we get to what happened, no matter what happened, you know, a minute later or 30 seconds later, let's never forget, Peter walked on water. Can you say amen to that? Amen. He got out of the boat, which is more than most of us would do, and then he stood on water like it was solid ground. And he's looking at Jesus. You know how it is when you're, you're talking to someone? You know, like I was talking to Richard here, and... and, and eyes are meeting and he knows I'm talking to him and then someone walks in, I do this. You know how you kind of look away and he knows, hey, you know, you're not paying attention. That's exactly what Peter did. His eyes shifted just for a moment and he saw a really big wave. And the minute he saw that wave and took his eyes off Jesus, his perception shifted just enough that he started to sink. That's what I'm talking about, what happens in our relationships. Sometimes all it takes is a slight nudge to the right or left, and all of a sudden we see the storm. And we stop seeing what might be good. All we see now, what is a threat, what we fear, what might be bad. And the minute we take our eyes off what might be good, because what's good here? Jesus. Watching Jesus is really good. That represents what is good, and the ways is what is bad. And the minute you do that, down you go. That happens in marriage all the time. That very thing takes place. You know, I just, I, I see God teaching us 
how it is that we need to learn the discipline of what we look at, what we might see. This is called a perceptual shift. It's a, it's a real thing. A real thing that takes place is that by how you just look at something a little bit differently can change what you see. For example, in the next slide. Look at the top left there, your left. What do you see up there? You see a beautiful young girl. Anyone see anything else? You see the old lady? You know how you see the difference? It's where you look. A little adjustment in your eye. And you can see a beautiful young lady or an older lady. What about this one right here? That's a little... Could you stay there, please? Okay, look at that right there. What do you see? It's a little bit, bit, it's a little bit clearer on this screen. You might see it here. So what do you see here? What are the two things you see? What do you see? You saw bats. They're called demons. The devil. Those are angels and the devil. <laughs> Just a little adjustment in what you look at and you see the angels or you see the devils. It's where you look. It's called perceptual shift. That can change everything in what happens in your marriage, what happens in your church, what happens in your life. Look at the next slide. Here's another couple examples, very famous. So what do you see on the, the one that's to the left there? Two people, right? What else do you see? Yeah, you can see like a cup or a, 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 you call it a chalice. Yeah, there it is. Oh, yeah, I see. Just, just adjust your eye a little bit. Now, what about this one right here? What do you see there? You see a face? That's a female face. What else do you see? You see a guy playing a saxophone. Exactly. So there's a guy playing the saxophone, and there's a female face there. And how you see those two images, your two images, is just by where you look. If you look one way or the other, it changes everything. I want you to listen to something. Words can never adequately convey the incredible impact of your attitude towards life. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us, and 90% how we respond to it. I have learned and am continuing to learn I'm in charge of my response. And, I mean, I'm still learning. We're all learning. I don't, no one's ever going to get it all put together. But I really believe in that statement that a lot might happen to us, but how I respond to it is critical. And how I own my own personal responsibility for what I do. You know, Lee's slight shifts can be everything in a relationship. There's basically three lenses that we look at. And, and they're, they're really pretty simple. Here's kind of a summary of what I've just gotten done talking about. My view of you the good is I focus only on your good. Or my view of the bad, I focus on your good and bad. Or my view of the ugly, I focus only on your bad. And in a relationship, your partner is good, bad, or ugly. Sounds like a movie. 
but it's all about what your focus is. So how can you go from ugly to good? Listen, change your focus. Your perceptional shift can change your whole attitude about what you see. And listen to me, it is your responsibility to make the shift. It is not the other person's job. It is your job to make that shift. Really, we're talking about and leading to this next is, is how we become resentful. How do we become resentful? See, I, th- I think resentfulness and resentment is one of the critical things that happens in relationships. I know it's kind of a crazy thought, but I was talking to someone and we were talking about their relationship with Jesus. And I was, you know, we had had several weeks of conversation. And I finally uh, was talking and I said, here's my perception. And help me out here. I said, it sounds to me like you're resentful. You have resentments to Jesus. The person looked at me and said, that's not possible, that's God. I said, well, let's talk about it. And after another couple of weeks of conversation, the person came back and said, you're right. I hadn't thought of it, but I resent God because of what he did, or didn't do. And I said, you know what? Nothing is going to change until you heal and deal with and resolve Lowe's resentments. The same thing is true in a marriage. If resentments take place in a marriage, and you don't deal with them, that marriage will end. It eventually will blow up. What we're really talking about is dealing with the irritants that happen in a relationship. Kind of like a balloon. So there's life into this marriage right now, a container called a balloon. And what happens is irritants take place. Little air goes out. So what do you do? Well, you deal with it, you talk about it, you forgive, you resolve, and guess what happens? You breathe life again back into the marriage. And that's kind of the way marriage is. You know, you're you're always losing a little air. (laughs) You're always losing a little life. Because life happens and there's irritants and there's things that happen. So you resolve them. You take care of them. You, you, you answer the questions. You deal with them. Or you don't. And then before you know it, you have a major problem. And here's what happens to the marriage. Blows up. Because if you maintain the container full of resentments, eventually it will blow up. That's what happens to relationships. And so God is telling us is that we need to deal with these resentments in our marriage. And I'm going to tell you, it is critical. I see more couples come in and we talk and it's been years 
and the resentments have not been dealt with. The irritations have not been dealt with. And the result is eventually, it's going to take a miracle for what God's going to do. And this is all about attitude. So I want you to see something. I want you to get this. This is really simple. Resentments have a developmental course. They don't just happen. Resentments build and are developed and made over time. Resentments just all of a sudden take place, boom, I'm resentful. Now, there may be some unhealthy individuals that might jump to that, but that's a whole nother ballgame. For most of us, resentments develop and build and become dynamic till eventually you're saying things like, what can I do about it? I give up. This is never going to change. How many times do I have to tell you to clean up after dinner? How many times do I have to tell you to pick up your socks? How many times do I need to say this to you? And eventually, because you've said it so many times, the irritant has become a resentment, and now the relationship is injured, and then every little thing becomes a big thing. It's like going to the mall. You, you know, you say to your, you say, hey, let's, well, we got some time for you. Let's go to the mall. Let's go shopping. Let's go have some fun. Let's go hang out. You know, let's go down to the Tacoma Mall. Let's go down to Seattle and let's go spend the day looking at stuff. Let's go buy some cool stuff. And you're excited. You think, oh, this will be great. A great relief from the tensions of life. We're going to have some fun. And as you approach the mall, you move into the parking area and you're driving and you're a little distracted for a moment and you don't see the car pulling out in front of you and you slam on your brakes and your mate is kind of pushed forward into the dashboard accidentally and next thing you hear is, what is wrong with you? You never drive very well. Why am I letting you drive? You are a horrible driver. You almost hit that person. Well, I didn't. I don't want to hear, well, I didn't. You do this all the time. And now it begins to escalate because that becomes a catalyst for you to dump all of your feelings of all the irritations and all the resentments that built up. This is exactly what happened to a couple I was dealing with not too long ago. And guess how their day went? They still went shopping separately. <laughs> and they spent the next three hours going different directions, staying away from each other because they had not dealt with the resentments. And their whole day was lost because they both had a really bad attitude. You know, if I were to summarize it, really it's little things began to add up it's called the pebble in the shoe syndrome. I brought this because yesterday I was working out in the garden, you know, and I had my sandals on. Oh, it felt so good. Did it feel good yesterday? I was like, this is like the best day. I mean, we have the best summers anywhere on the planet. Can you see me of that? I mean, almost anywhere. And it was just so great. And I was working and I was doing stuff. And I got one of these, I got a bunch of them here, you can see them, but I got one of these pebbles into my sandal. And I thought, crumb, this is really irritating. You know, I mean, I got it in there, and I kind of ignored it for a few minutes, but you cannot ignore this in your sandal. 
So I had to take it off, stop my work, and let the, let the pebble come out. What would have happened if I didn't let the pebble out? Yeah, it would have been like, I couldn't have gotten my work done. I've been so distracted by the pebble in my sandal until I got rid of it. But the problem is we don't remove the pebble from our marital sandals. <laughs> and instead, we leave it in there till finally it becomes like a big rock. <laughs> Can I imagine if you put this on your foot? <laughs> yeah, Terry's laughing. Please don't. I mean, if I put this on your foot, what would happen? Who's got, if I, you have sand, if I put this on your foot, what would happen? It would begin to crush your foot. And when we don't deal with it, it's like putting a really heavy rock on your marital relationship and you start crushing it. And then the next thing happens. So little things become big things, and big things are now all you see. All you see is a rock. And this is a pretty big rock. And now this is all that you can see now. Nothing else is good. Nothing else is healthy. Nothing else is okay. All you see is a rock. And all the good things, all the past things, all the amazing things are lost because you've got the weight of a crushing rock. And because that, the relationship is crippled. The relationship is injured. So what do we do? Well, Scripture has something to tell us. Ephesians says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same, what's that word? Attitude that Christ Jesus had. So here is the basic pattern. The basic pattern is basically the goal, verse 5, have a Christ-like attitude towards others, which includes your mate. How is it that we can have a Christ-like attitude to everyone else but our mate? Our mate ought to get first. You got to think, what would, what would the attitude of Jesus be? And then what's laid out for us are three mandates. Number one, be united in our relationship by keeping the same mind, love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Listen, here's what I've learned. Marriage is best done as a team. And you need to stay as a team. That is such a critical... It is not an, an two individuals living together. It is an interdependent relationship. Number two, be humble. Avoid the power struggles. And do not act arrogantly, but think of your spouse as more important than yourself. I had someone tell me, and, and it was interesting just in our counseling sessions, and he, it finally hit him, and he said these words, my job, my mission, is to die to self. 
He said, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this exactly, but I finally realized that if I'm going to see a recovery of my relationship, which has really been injured, he said, the only answer is for me to die to self. And he's done a lot of bad things. But I believe there's hope because he understands this. He understands what it means to be humble. And then be conscientious and do not look out for just yourself. Rather, pursue the interests of your spouse. I mean, once again, it's such a crazy thing. I talked about this the other, the other day. Let me summarize it again. Be nice and be kind to each other. Be conscientious. When you begin to follow Lee's mandates in your marriage, I believe there's hope and there's healing. So exactly how does God heal resentment? How, does, how do we really overcome these things? When you come next week, we'll talk about it. I'm going to show you the secret that God gives us for overcoming the wounds and the injuries that come by way of resentment. But I want to leave you with a homework assignment. You ready? I want you to go talk to God and ask him one question. God, how's my attitude? And then let him talk. <laughs> God, how is my attitude? And then if you're really brave, only for some of you, you can sit down with your mate and then ask the question, dear, <laughs> how's my attitude? See what you get. That, may be, that might be quite a revelation. Think about that. But what an amazing discussion to have with God. And to say, Lord, how's my attitude right now? Where am I going with it? And then let him speak to you. Can you say amen to that, church? Amen. All right, you got homework. Let's pray.